This is Deacon Allen. We're going to be proceeding now to the second uh, short talk on the Catholicism of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, last time we'd kind of done a brief introduction, and this time I want to talk about Christ figures in the Lord of the Rings. Remember what we'd said at the be uh, beginning about how Tolkien, in a famous letter to a, a Jesuit friend of his, uh, uh, Father Murray, had uh, described the Lord of the Rings as a fundamentally uh, Catholic and religious, uh, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the re in the revision, and uh, and so we wanted to talk uh, about some of the things that are in here that uh, that the Christ figures that that appear in the Lord of the Rings and perhaps in his larger legendarium uh, as well, but most but most focus on on the Lord of the Rings itself. Now, I want to make clear that Tolkien in his his uh, forward to the second edition of the Lord of the Rings wrote. But I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations, and I always have done so, since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of the readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purpose domination of the author. So what we have in mind here... Uh, of allegory, the difference between allegory and applicability. Um, if you think about great allegorical works, um, I don't know, Catholics aren't necessarily familiar with a work that was really popular among uh, uh, English-speaking uh, Protestants until very recently called The Pilgrim's Progress, where each character has got like a specific meaning. I mean, you've got the main character is Christian and he has friends like Mr. Worldly Wise and, you know, uh, there's Vanity Fair and there's Giant Despair and all, you know, all these adventures that he goes through. Um, you know, where each character, each event in the story means something in particular. And that's what Tolkien is seeing as allegory, where the author is basically you know, setting forward, this is what this means, right? Whereas applicability, you 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 connect with real life in in different ways, so that you can see something something reminds you of something. Uh, certain characters have certain qualities, uh, both good and bad, uh, that are applicable to other situations, and that's what I'm talking about here when we talk about Christ figures in The Lord of the Rings, unlike uh, Tolkien's good friend C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia story, where, you know, it's hard not to see Aslan, the great lion, as Christ, especially, you know, when he dies on the stone table in, in order to pay the uh, dead of the traitor Edmund and rises from the dead the next morning. I mean, all that all that stuff is... is uh, um, uh, is much more allegorical, not quite the same as the as you know, giant despair or you know, uh, uh, um, you know, in in the Pilgrim's Progress, but but still, um, much more strongly, this is Christ uh, kind of thing, whereas uh, the characters in Tolkien's story is much more applicable. Um, now, 
I'm assuming as we go forward here that you all know something about the story, at least that you've seen the movies. Now, the books are in some ways quite different from the, the movies, um, but uh, 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 I think a lot of this is going to resonate with both. The first and most obvious Christ-like figure in The Lord of the Rings is the character of Aragorn. Uh, Aragorn is in many ways an archetype of Christ. He is a suffer the suffering servant. You know, he's lived in exile. He's a ranger. You know, with, lives a lives a hard life. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. To quote from the prophet Isaiah, um, he is also uh, the king foretold, who is crownless, just as our Lord was the Messiah. Uh, foretold by the prophets, but when he comes, he gets no crown but a crown of thorns. Uh, you know, certainly when we meet Aragorn, that's what he is. He leads this hidden life in his youth. He's actually hidden in uh, Rivendell, where he's raised by, uh, fostered by a relative. How does that sound familiar? Thinking of St. Joseph, uh, uh, as, uh, as from the tribe of Judah, and here's, uh, and here is, uh, um, uh, of the house of David, and here is uh, uh, our Lord Himself, uh, being uh, living a hidden life in Nazareth in His youth, being fostered by a relative. Aragorn is also a healer. Um, there's a very strong line in the books, especially in the hands of a king, uh, the hand of a healer, and uh, so he uses this athalas, this uh, um, herb that he is able to uh, effect great healing with. Um, and also, if you read The Lord of the Rings, to Bilbo and the elves in Rivadel, he is called the Dunedain. Dunedain is, uh, in one of the elvish languages, means man of the West, uh, uh, meaning that he's uh, the, a particular group of humans in the stories are have are connected to the West is where the Valar, who are the uh, angelic beings, um, uh, in uh, in charge of of the physical world uh dwell and uh the dunedain originally came from uh an island in the west of middle earth to the west of middle earth and he is he's called the dunedain which means he is the man the human one par excellence and in a way doesn't that mirror uh the way our lord used the title of son of man um meaning the human one par excellence. Another thing that I had noticed, I've never seen this in anybody else's writings, but so I'm perhaps inordinately proud of this, but his descent from the hero Elendil follows in three lines, uh, which you will see in the appendix to the Lord of the Rings. There are the kings of Arnor, and then uh, of, and then when the line of Arnor fails, then, uh, then the kings of Arthedine, and when that kingdom falls, then the chieftains of the north uh, down to himself. And I noticed, you know what? Our Lord's genealogy, as presented in Matthew, is divided into thirds, um, where uh, there's the descent uh, um, from uh, uh, uh Abraham to uh, David, from David down to the exile, and then from the exile uh, uh, in Babylon uh, to our Lord himself. Um, 
Tolkien describes Aragorn also as a priest king in one of his letters. Now that's interesting because, of course, in uh, in the Lord of the Rings, one of the things we note is the complete or near complete absence of any kind of religious practice, prayer, uh, uh, cultus of any sort. Uh, and Tolkien accounts for that by saying that you know he's taken that out, um, uh, um, uh, but that it's really kind of baked into the moral uh, vision of the of the book. But um, in uh, one of his letters, uh, he writes about uh, um, how uh, at the end of The Return of the King, uh, Aragorn re-enters a hallow in Mount Mindolwin, just out, uh, which is the mountain uh, that is next to Minas Tirith. And uh, um, where and it is a it is a hallow only approachable by the king, where he had anciently offered thanks and praise on behalf of his people, but it had been forgotten. It was re-entered by Aragorn, and there he found a sapling of the white tree and replanted it in the court of the fountain. It is to be presumed that with the reemergence of the lineal priest kings, of whom Luthien, the blessed elf maiden, was foremother, the worship of God would be renewed, and his name or title be again more often heard. Um, so Tolkien writes in in a in a in a a, a letter, um, uh, to again to uh, uh, to Father Murray. Um, a different letter, but again, uh, discussing some of these religious elements that are kind of hidden in, in the story. Um, where he, so in this letter, he, he describes Aragorn specifically as a priest king. And we note that the War of the Ring, which is the whole culmination of the Lord of the Rings, ends with Aragorn's coronation and wedding. Just as the nuptias Anyi, the wedding supper of the Lamb, at the end of Revelation is the culmination of all of sacred scripture. As Christ, you know, the, the Lamb that was slain, uh, is, uh, is married then to the church, the New Jerusalem. Also, we find in the story in the appendix uh, to the Lord of the Rings, how Aragorn freely lays down his life at the end. Uh, and and no one takes it from him, just as our Lord said in John chapter ten verse eighteen. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And then, most importantly, I think in the course of the story, there is his taking the paths of the dead to free those souls imprisoned by their sin of oath breaking, which I think is as a deliberate echoing of the what in the Middle Ages was called the harrowing of hell, when Christ after his death on the cross, descended to the abode of the dead and brought the uh, Adam and, uh, and all of the saints of the Old Testament out of this period of waiting, what the early church fathers called the limbo of the fathers, and brought them into heaven. Um, so we see all of these, again, Aragorn is not Christ. This is not you know, an allegory, but there are a lot of echoes, a lot of Christ-like applicability to Aragorn. The next one that would probably jump out at us if we know the books and, and the movies as well is Gandalf. Now, Gandalf was sent from beyond the world. Of course, in the mythology in, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Gandalf is himself one of these immortal angelic beings. Um, but anyway, he's, he appears as a man. He's sent from beyond the world with a specific task. Uh, he has, he dies, uh, 
to all appearances in his fight with the Balrog in Moria. And then he has a resurrection. And what happens when we first meet him, when the, the characters in the story first meet uh, Gandalf, they don't quite recognize him, right? Remember in the Gospels, uh, after our Lord's resurrection, he's not immediately recognized by his disciples. Um, so in some ways, there's, uh, there's that Gandalf uh, um, has some of this applicability, some of these Christ-like uh, elements to him. Another very important one, of course, is uh, the character of Frodo Baggins himself. Um, and especially, I'm thinking about, and, and I thought Peter Jackson really presented this well, uh, with the, the, the very end as he is just going on toward Mount Doom to finish his quest and destroy the ring. And he is completely without any strength at all. Uh, it really is his Via Dolorosa, his way of the cross, as he just has enough strength to take one step forward. Um, he even has his own uh, Simon of Cyrene in his faithful servant Sam Gamgee, who at one point actually carries Frodo uh, as uh, Simon of Cyrene carried the cross. Um, in a way, too, also, he's got his own Judas in that Gollum or Smeagol had, you know, kind of been tamed, was one of, you know, I mean, Smeagol was never a, a loyal member of his group the way we could, would presume Judas was at one point. Um, but uh, but Smeagol uh, does betray him. Um, and, uh, and Frodo still carries his wounds after his uh, mission is completed. Uh, remember in at the at Mount Doom, Gollum bites his finger off, and Frodo is Frodo of the Nine Fingers from there on. He's he carries his wound in his hand, he carries in his body uh the the wound of the Morgul blade that he suffered with a stab from the Witch King of Angmar in the uh uh at at Weathertop, the King the Lord of the Nazgul. Uh he still, even though his mission is completed, he still carries uh, all those wounds in him. Uh, and, uh, and so in, in the same way, our Lord, even though in, in, in his glorified body after his resurrection was recognizable by his wounds. So again, no allegory here. These characters are not Christ in the same way, even that, that, uh, you know, Lewis's, uh, Aslan, the lion is, Christ in the context of the world of Narnia. Um, but they are applicable. And again, we see in this uh, the, uh, the, the Catholic imagination of Tolkien. And as he tells the story, uh, bringing these elements to um, these various uh, characters uh, for us. Um, next time, we will be uh, talking about Marian images in The Lord of the Rings and in the larger Legendarium.